instruction, correction, and encouragement. An apostle is one who has been sent by God, okay? So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, just open to the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation. Then right before that, you'll find Jude, and then you'll come to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And that's where we are, 1st John 1, starting with verse 1. What's our primary mission here at Summit Church? You better believe it, for your own sake, for the sake of the world, and for the glory of God, all eyes on Jesus. We have a specific goal today related to this text, and, and that is to make your joy complete. And it really, an understanding is to make our joy complete, because as we see as we'll go here, that one person's joy can never be complete until we together are experiencing that joy. Once upon a time, there was a those are awesome words to a kid. Once upon a time, they opened the door to the magical dream world of, uh, of the make-believe. But somehow, every child comes to that place where they turn a corner, and suddenly the words once upon a time are reduced to nothing more than kid stuff. Somehow, life has changed from being a playground that can experience, be experienced every day to the reality that there are some minds out there, and life becomes a minefield. Fairy tale stories are no longer meaningful when suddenly you find yourself in a place where the only thing make believe does for you is help you to escape those very real giants for a moment, only to realize that you have to come back and face those same giants again and again until at last one day somehow you conquer the giants. And for that reason, we, we find ourselves on a search for something that is real, something that can be counted on, something that's of substance, something that's of significance, something of strength, something that can give us strength. But this search for something real isn't anything new. It's been going on since the beginning of time. There's nothing wrong with the search, nothing wrong with it at all. In fact, it's a good thing, but there's a huge difference, and we must recognize that there's a huge difference between wanting to find what's real and actually finding it. Like a child eating cotton candy at a circus, many bite into life expecting to find something that's substantial, something of significance, something that's real, only to discover that that which tastes sweet for a moment dissolves quickly into nothing. And if anything, something that leaves a taste in our mouth that is only bitter and destructive. And that's why 1 John is so important to us. This is where 1 John comes in because the Apostle John is expressing here in this book with great urgency, I found it and I want you to know that this thing is real. There's nothing make-believe about what we've discovered. I'll never forget a scientist who attended our church uh, some time back. He's since passed away. But as a scientist, his favorite verses in the Bible were these verses we're looking at today. 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4. Because in these verses, he saw a picture of the study of substance and observation of those things that are tangible and observable. That's what he spent his time doing. I want you to see these verses, and I want you to see if you can appreciate them from the perspective of a scientist. But before we get there, let's just pause right here. I know that we're still dealing with 
some of the difficulties of our, of our crisis. We're still in the midst of crisis. People we know are still without homes and trying to figure out how to make it. There's other things that you're carrying today. I want just to take a moment for you to cast your cares on the Lord. Uh, whatever those may be, he invites you to do that. Uh, those people, those circumstances, whatever it is, just take a moment. Cast your cares on him. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This life appeared. We have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and what we've heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy, and as I said, it's all-inclusive, that our joy together might be complete. But as you catch it over and over again, we see those words, we've seen, we've touched for ourselves. This thing is real. That's what John wants us to know here. So can you understand why a believing scientist would appreciate these verses so much? Huh? Yeah, because they're explaining to us those things that they experienced for themselves, that they saw for themselves. And this is very important in understanding the contextual situation in which John is writing because there were those who wanted to say that Jesus wasn't a real person. He was just kind of a phenomena, something that they thought they were seeing, but they really didn't. And these kind of false teachings were going on. Christ's disciples were firsthand witnesses of Jesus. This book is a study of Jesus. Now, I've given the study the title, Love Beyond Reason, but in understanding Jesus, we understand that's what Jesus is. Jesus is love beyond reason, love undeserved. John himself referred to himself as the one that Jesus loved. And when you understand John, you have to ask yourself the question, how did John go from being one of the sons, one of the sons, one of the sons of thunder to being a son of love? I mean, there was a time where John and his brother James, they wanted to call down fire from heaven to blow away a bunch of people. <laughs> and that's how they got the title, Sons of Thunder. How did he go to being a son of love? Well, I'll tell you, Jesus' love transformed him in a powerful and real way. And consequently, the word love appears in this book 36 times. Think about how small 1 John is. Just kind of thumb through it really quickly. Think about that and then realize that the word love appears more right here in 1 John than it appears in any other book of the Bible. I mean, go to the book of Psalms. Look how big that book is. And yet love appears more in this book. And Jesus' love for John was so huge that as Jesus hung on that cross dying and he looked down and he saw John and he saw his own mother, Jesus' own mother, Mary. Guess who he appointed to take charge of his mom in his death? And then put yourself in that position and ask yourself the question, if you were on your deathbed, who would you like to entrust to take care of your own mother? Wouldn't it be someone you trusted dearly? Someone that you loved dearly? And that picture right there is a picture of unbelievable love. Jesus loved John. When John first began following Jesus, he was a young man. 
But now in writing this book, he's well up in age. I mean, it's generally believed that the book of 1 John was written about 90 A.D., so John may have well have been into his 90s. All the other disciples are dead. They were all murdered for their faith, and so John is left alone. They tried to kill John. They boiled him in hot oil, if you could believe it. He refused to die, so they banned him to the Isle of Patmos, where he would eventually give us the book of Revelation. So by this time, uh, by the time he's writing this letter, the church of Jesus Christ has grown very quickly and, and it has had great impact, but now false teachers are starting to show their faces. In fact, we're going to study these. He refers to them as deceivers, antichrists, and false teachers. We'll get to those as we read this book and understand them. But John knows that he's going to die soon, and he doesn't want the truth, the good news of Jesus Christ, to die with him. So he wants it to be clear exactly what they were about, and exactly what they are about, and exactly what the church is about. He wrote 1 John to articulate what the church of Jesus Christ is to stand for, to be, and to represent. But there's a number of things in this book that he gives us reasons for writing 1 John. In fact, the first one is there in verse 4, where he says, we write this to make our joy complete. And as I've already said two times, it's an all-inclusive statement that could well read this way. We write these things that all of us together may experience the reality of the fullness of joy. And what it does is, is it gives the sense that my joy can never reach its fullness until your joy is complete as well, so that together we can reach this place of the fullness of joy. One of the statements from the Tozer study that's just going to stick with me for the rest of my life, and I'm going to pick up those last two chapters of Tozer's when I get a, of Tozer when we get a chance, because they just spoke so much into my life. But this idea that the essence of all creation is rooted in proper connections. Okay, so it's only in a proper connection with the Father that we can properly connect to one another, and that's why the word fellowship is used in these statements. But the, the phrase, the desire here, right in the first four verses, is for you, for us together to experience the fullness of joy. Jesus used that, that expression again and again. Take, for example, when he talked about the importance of a proper relationship with Christ and to maintain that connectedness. He gives us these words in that very passage, John 15, 11, when he says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said in John 16, 24, until now, you have not asked for anything in, my name, in anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Friends, perfect joy is an important part of your Christian experience. Too much of church is how you dress and, and, and other legalistic kind of issues. But in all of that stuff, we tend to lose sight of joy. And here we see that joy is the result of a proper connectedness to God through Jesus Christ. It's different from happy. 
Happy can be temporal. Happy can be circumstantial. But joy tends to run deep in the heart of the believer because somehow through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God is continually reminding us of what Jesus accomplished, of our eternal hope of glory. And somehow, even though we may not like our circumstances and we're not happy about them, somehow joy carries on. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And so the first reason John gives for writing this book is that he desires that our joy be complete together. He wants your joy container to overflow. You okay with that? Huh? Yeah. Sound a little superficial? Well, it's not. It's rooted in proper connectedness. Now, I've already mentioned that there are those joy stealers. Some of those joy stealers are right in the church. Some of those joy stealers are right in this world as you do life every day. And so it's for that reason that we have one primary purpose as a church. What is that purpose? Yes, you better believe it. You didn't say that too convincingly. What is that one purpose? Yeah, you better believe it. He alone is the source of overflowing joy because he is the way of connectedness to the Father, Jesus Christ. So verse 1, this idea of truth revealed. Let's go after that. It says, that which was from the beginning. It's, it's fun here to begin to tie all of Scripture together. Uh, he's a very similar expression in the Gospel of John chapter 1 where he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God. And what's the next phrase? And the word was God. And he's talking right there about Jesus Christ. But what he's doing is he's playing off the very first book of the Bible where the scriptures start off, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John's very intentional about using this language, the language of the the first book. Now, I realize that this part right here this teaching is going to be new for some of you but you need to hear it because when John says that which was from the beginning he's talking about Jesus and he's reiterating a point that he makes again and again and again and that's the fact that Jesus was present at creation and more than that that Jesus was the word that came forth from the father that allowed all things to come in, into being. Very, very important concept. In fact, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, we find this little conversation where God's about to create man, and he says these words. He says, let us make man in our image. So it poses the question, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> let us make man in our own image, who is God talking to there? And and you could say that, you know, the hosts of heaven were present, and that would be true. The hosts of heaven were present, but we know that the hosts of heaven were not created in God's image. Only man was created in God's image. That's a unique statement to man. So he's talking to the Son and to the Spirit. In fact, There are several places that describe Jesus as being God, okay? And I want you to see one of them. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Did you hear what I just said? 
Did you hear that statement? Did you hear me say, Jesus is God? That's very, very, very important. Okay? Say it again. Hear it. Jesus is God. Now look at this. This is uh, taken from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says, talking about Jesus, He is the image, which means He is the visible representation of what? Of the invisible God, the firstborn over all... Man, you want to read this with me, don't you? Let's read it together. All right, I'll back up. I can hear you reading this thing. Let's do it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Yes. So when John talks here about Jesus being from the beginning, it's clear that he's saying that Jesus was present with the Father at creation and that Jesus is the word of God that brought all things into order. Now get this. Okay, that means history began with Jesus and history gets a new beginning with Jesus. Do you realize that's what we call it? His story, history, right? Because history is the story of the redemption of mankind through God's son, Jesus Christ. Need to hear that. I need to emphasize that. Biblical history broken into two parts, creation and Christ. We've defined it in our history as B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, uh, Domini, that's right, the year of the Lord, okay, trying to mess that up these days by, by changing our history together, but that's the reality of the way it is. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, John 1, 1 John 1 says, that which was from the beginning, meaning that history began with Jesus, history gets a new beginning with Jesus, and people are testifying all over the world that they have themselves have gotten a new beginning by putting faith in Jesus. Have you gotten your new beginning by putting your faith in Jesus Christ? I need to pause right here, and I need to give you a little teaching that uh, we can call, Why Do We Worship Jesus as God? Why do we worship Jesus as God? I want to give you nine reasons, and I want to give you these nine reasons from Jesus himself, okay? Why Jesus says we should worship him. There are those who want to tell us that Christianity is the same as all other religions of the world, and I'm standing here today telling you that is not true because all the religions of the world can be defined as something man must do where only Christianity is defined as that which God has done. Okay, very important distinction. You cannot hear what I'm about to say and conclude that Jesus was just a good man in history like any religious teacher or he was a a good teacher. Because to say he was a good man and a good teacher would be to say that what he taught must have been good. So you've got to embrace what he says. So what did Jesus say? Okay, under the title, why do we worship Jesus? Okay, and the first one, we worship Jesus because Jesus said, He's God. 
Yeah, in John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, you could sit there and you could argue with that. You could say, well, oneness could mean all sorts of things. It doesn't necessarily mean they're the same. Well, that might be true, but there's a real clincher here, and that is the fact that the moment Jesus said those words, the crowd that was listening picked up stones and were ready to stone him to death because they understood what he was saying. They understood that to them he was blaspheming, saying that he himself is God. Okay, so we worship him because he said he is God. Secondly, we worship Jesus because he affirmed those who acknowledged him as God. Okay, now look at this. This is Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse 63. This is at Jesus' trial before Caiaphas. And it says here, the high priest said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus' reply was, yes, it is as you say. And at that moment, the high priest tore his clothes and cried blasphemy. Why? Because he understood that Jesus was claiming himself to be God. Third reason we worship Jesus is because he said he came down from heaven. Okay, this is John 6, 38. Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So you study all the other religious leaders of history in the world, and some of them may claim that they've gotten a glimpse of heaven, maybe a near-death experience where they've gotten to see something of heaven, kind of like Colton Burpo got a glimpse of heaven. That's why we have the book, Heaven is for Real. But only Jesus specifically said, He came from there. (laughs) In fact, in our text in 1 John, I don't know if you caught it, but look at verse 2. It says, the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He claimed to have come down from heaven. Fourth, we worship Jesus because Jesus said he was sinless. All the other religious leaders of history will tell you about their struggle with sin. But only Jesus makes statements like this. He asked the question here in John 8, 46, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He had to be without sin because he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Number five, we worship Jesus because he said Not only was he sinless, but that he forgives sins. You see, a proper biblical understanding shows us that sin is the reason for all the problems we face on earth. In fact, I didn't bring the verse, but in Romans chapter 8, we can see that all creation has been groaning as it anticipates. It's redemption. Okay, so all the problems of the world are rooted in the fact that that sin is a reality. But Jesus, uh, only Jesus can make statements like this, this statement. When, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Boy, did that upset the religious leaders. And they asked the question, who but God can forgive sin? And you can almost hear Jesus in the background saying, exactly. Yeah. Number six, we worship Jesus 
because he said he is the only way to heaven. There's many verses, but one of the most familiar, John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you know, Christians are accused of being very narrow. And, and maybe we are narrow in some sense. And if we are narrow, it's because Jesus was narrow. But what you need to consider is this. God has made a way. And instead of arguing with that, realize that's very good news. And do we, as the receiver of the gift, really want to argue with the giver of the gift about the gift that he's given? No way. But let's be fair. I mean, you could say Christianity's narrow, but you could also say Christianity's very broad. We're broad because Jesus was broad. How are we broad? Because a proper understanding of what Jesus has accomplished is to understand this, whosoever will may come. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus blood has us all covered equally and that is awesome news you can call us narrow but you better call us broad as well his arms are wide open number seven we worship jesus because he accepted worship as god now i think we would all agree that jesus held the ten commandments in high regard in fact he kept the ten commandments perfectly he honored the Ten Commandments. Well, the first of the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall have no other God before me. Yet on the night that Jesus walked on water, the same night that he calmed the wind and the sea, amazing control over nature, right? Those who saw this, the scripture says, this is Matthew 14, then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. And Jesus did not refute them. For making those statements. Number eight, we worship Jesus because he performed miracles. Now you take all the, the great spiritual leaders of time and history, those who are accredited for various religions around the world, and you, we, we'd all agree they all had spiritual insights, okay? Known for some, maybe a specific insight that they had. But only Jesus was consistent about healing the sick, about his control over the elements of nature. Only Jesus was able to raise someone from the dead. In fact, Jesus had the capacity of control over his own life and his own death. Okay? Before he died, he said to those followers closest to them, the scripture says, he then began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And then he did it. <laughs> How do you do that? How do you talk about your death, your resurrection, and then hit it perfectly when it all plays out? And then here's the ninth reason. We worship Jesus because he knew the future. So he knew when he would die. He knew he would rise again. But he gave details as to Peter denying him. He gave details as to how Judas would betray him. He gave very specific details about how the disciples should prepare for, for Holy Week. He gave specific details about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And that testimony is still there today for all who will to see. Scholars tell us that in Jesus' death and resurrection alone, over 300 prophecies were fulfilled. 
Jesus has the capacity of, of knowing the future. This is why we worship Jesus. This is why we come together and recognize worthy is the lamb that was slain. Because we know, according to scriptures, that there's coming a day when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, now some will stir up arguments and they'll say, well, even Christians don't agree on things. And you know, that might be true on some very non-essentials, but when it comes to the fundamentals of the faith, we all hold hands and we agree together. In fact, when it comes to these nine things that I just gave you today, we agree on these nine things and together we worship Jesus. This is why we worship him. How about you? Have you given Jesus proper place in your life? Hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and believe. Let's go on in our text. That was pretty, pretty strong for the first five or six words of 1 John, but let's keep going. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes. Now, if you read on in verse 2, and we've done that a couple of times this morning, you see the words, the life appeared. That means the, the life was made manifest. It was revealed openly for all to see. Think about yourself. And if you were God, how would you reveal yourself to people? Now, now think about this. Your holiness is like a consuming fire, and man's sinfulness is like dry grass. Okay, and we all know what that's like. I mean, this summer I was thanking God every day for rain, huh? And I was thinking I'd much rather have rain than I would fire, right? And so I made all sorts of preparations for fire. I didn't make preparations for flood, huh? I don't think any of us did, right? But here's a holy God whose holiness is a consuming fire and our sinfulness is like dry grass. How do you reveal yourself to a sinful people? Well, the scriptures tell us that he revealed himself in nature, and you can find some of that in Romans 1 if you want to check that out later. It also says that he reveals himself through the word, the Bible, okay? And so we're very intentional about teaching scriptures here. We like to teach the scriptures verse by verse around here to understand the written word. But the most complete way that God has revealed himself is through the word, his son. And Jesus talks about himself being the personification of the word of God. That's what Jesus is, the living reality, right? We weren't able to see the Father, but we were able to see the Son, and some were able to observe him. Today, we witness the experience of the Holy Spirit who's working in those who believe, giving testimony to the glory of God. In verse 1, we read these words, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, the life appeared. So right there, Jesus is the personification of God. And then Jesus says over in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So John's saying, we've seen him and we want you to see him as well. Believe us, believe our testimony. In fact, there are many, many testimonies of those who have seen Jesus. That's why Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at this. This is starting with verse 3. Paul writes, for what I received, 
I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. And here's those appearances again. And that he appeared to Peter, and then the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What do we see here? Well, we see eyewitnesses. And there's no stronger testimony than the testimony of an eyewitness. And if you have three eyewitnesses who all claim to have seen the same thing, you have a really strong case. Right here we see over 500 people. And, and Paul says, most of whom are still alive. They're saying, he's saying, oh, if you don't believe my testimony, they're still out there. Go and ask them. <laughs> it's with great urgency that they want us to understand what they've seen. And so the question is, whose testimony will you believe? Will you believe those who walked with Jesus and experienced him? Or will you believe those who are still trying to explain him away some 2,000 years later? John walked with Jesus for three whole years. And he still testifies about him. He was the first guy to get to the tomb. First guy, because the women were there first, right? He was the first guy because he ran ahead of Peter, right? He was faster than Peter. He embraced Jesus. And if you can't trust John... Who can you trust? You know what I really find fascinating is that two of Jesus' own brothers gave testimony to Jesus. Closest followers went on to preach Jesus. I mean, I have four sisters and a brother, and if you were to ask them if Michael Descoli is the Messiah, I mean, I don't think they would give you a vote of approval on that one. huh? But Jesus' own siblings are saying he is the long-expected one. He's the Christ. They had nothing to gain from it. In fact, ultimately, they all went to their death because of it. They were martyred for their faith. Why is it so urgent for them? Because the essence of all creation is rooted in proper connections, and the only way we'll experience life as God has intended it is for us to reconnect to the Father. And they're saying, here's the way. It's real. It's not make-believe. No story here. Believe our testimony. We've seen it, and we want you to experience it also. That's good news, my friends. What's keeping you from following, following Jesus? No sin is too great. Where you've been isn't too far. Jesus gave his life for you. Receive him. Believe. Be encouraged. Let's pray. God, we believe Thank you for reminding us today of our hope in Christ. Hear the heart of that person who today you're drawing them to yourself, this person to yourself. They're turning and they're coming home to you. Lord, thank you in your great love that you're running to them to embrace them and take them home and restore them. All praise to you in Christ's name. Amen.